Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's a haunting question. chapter 11. We'll start reading at verse 25 and read down through verse 32. Um, we're really coming to the end of uh, the break in Romans. This, this has been sort of the theological presentation of the gospel uh, that Paul has been making, laying the foundation uh, with which we will then enter into Romans chapter 12 in two weeks, two weeks um, from today. We will um, start looking at chapter 12. But here in chapters 9 through 11, Paul has been dealing specifically with the question of what happens to Israel, what happens to the Jews, um, the chosen people of God. They are the, the focal point of, of God's working in history throughout the pages of the Old Testament. And um, now we uh, have, have come into a New Testament era. It seems statistically that uh, more Jews have rejected Jesus than have accepted Jesus. So the nation of Israel as a whole has rejected Christ. And the question comes up, well, what happens then to the Jews? Because God had said that he would preserve them, he said that he would keep them, and he would make of them a mighty nation, bless everybody through them, and those kinds of things. So the question is, did God make a mistake? Did somehow he choose the wrong people? Did he look down and say, well, if I had only known that uh, the children of Abraham were going to be so lousy in what they did, I would never have chosen Abraham. No, in point of fact, God knew that all along, and he worked through the Jews all along throughout the pages of the Old Testament, and he will continue to work. And at the end of history, when every um, knee bows and tongue confesses, Israel will be brought in and will be restored. Uh, we don't know exactly what that looks like. We don't know how to count that on an individual basis, you know, person by person. But what we do know is that God has said that um, those uh, whom he has chosen in Israel, uh, he will not abandon. See, God gave Israel a promise. And he promised to Israel, you're never going away. You'll never die. You'll always be there. And the amazing thing is that's absolutely true. It's kind of a miracle of human history that there is a race and a nation called the Jews still in existence today without a homeland, without all the things that most nations need in order to maintain their identity. The Jewish people have stayed together and maintained their identity as God's chosen people throughout history. God gave them that promise. And understand this, God did not give that promise to anybody else. God did not promise that the uh, nations of earth that we know would be everlasting. As much as we love our nation, as much as we love the United States of America, God never promised that the United States of America would always survive in the pages of human history. I mean, if you look at history, all those nations that that had persecuted the Jews, they're gone. The Assyrians, gone. The Babylonians, gone. The Romans, gone. And the nations throughout history that have persecuted the Jews, they have faded into oblivion. 
I dare say we ought to take that as a little bit of warning when we get so proud and boastful about our own nation and understand this. God did not say he would put up with us the way he has said he would put up with Israel. And God's judgment is sure. So God made that promise. He said to Israel, you will survive. And in the book of Revelation, we read this, that Jesus will appear, and when he appears, every eye will see him. And then the phrase, the next phrase, Revelation chapter 1, it says, even those who pierced him will see him. And when they do, they will acknowledge him, and they will give glory to the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that is what God is, is doing in the Jews. And as Paul has been writing in chapters 9 through 11, he's, he's, he's uh, working to get us to see that God didn't make a mistake, that he has been bringing about the salvation of the human race through the Jews, through the Messiah, Jesus, who is born out of the context of Judaism, that God has always been working through the Jews, and he has not revoked his promises. Now that's an important thing to pick up. We're going to read that in just a moment. But the gifts... The promises, the calling of God is not revocable. He doesn't take it back. When he gave Israel the gift of being his people, when he called them to be his chosen people, he did not take that back. It's not like he said, I've changed my mind. And that shows us who God is. For God has given to us the gift of salvation, the gift of the Holy Spirit. He has given to us the gift of knowing him and of being brought into a relationship with him. And the gifts of God are not revocable. He does not take them back. And the calling of God is not reversed. He has called us into an eternal fellowship with him through Jesus Christ. And he does not take that back. And so as we read about his dealings with Israel, we see that this is how God deals. He deals without revoking his gifts and his calling. And so I want for us to keep that sort of in mind as we're reading this passage of Scripture. We're coming to the very end of this theological exposition. Romans 12 begins sort of the practical application of the Bible to, uh, of the gospel to our lives. And uh, next week, we're, we're just going to have fun praising God, Okay. Um, that, that's verses uh, 34 to, to 36, or 33 to 36, and uh, th those are just fun verses, um, and that's all we're going to do. Won't, it, you won't have any, any um, you know, it won't teach you how to train the dog or anything, but it, it will it, you'll glorify God. But before we get there, we start at verse 25, Romans chapter 11. By the way, he's talking to Gentiles here, and the reason he's doing that is that we have a tendency to do exactly what the Jews had done in the first century. See, Israel had decided that they were so special that they didn't need to worry about God's acceptance. After all, they had the law, they had the temple, they were the chosen people. And what they found out was that God requires faith. Now, the temptation of us who are Gentiles um, is that... Uh, we have a tendency to think, well, God rejected the Jews. We must be pretty big. We must be really great stuff. See, the Jews had the idea that they were so good that God was lucky to have them. And sometimes that's the attitude we take. And so Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant about this. I want you to have a right view of what God is actually doing. So that's, that's what we're reading about here now. So in verse 25, it says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel 
until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that, by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Let's bow together and pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we stand constantly in amazement that you have taken us out of our sin, taken us out of our rebellion, out of our, our stubborn pride, and you opened our eyes by the power of your Holy Spirit that we might see Jesus and through him see you, Father. We're just amazed that you worked in such a way that you opened our hearts and softened our hearts that we would confess him as Lord and embrace him. Father, we just thank and praise you for our salvation. But as we thank and we praise you, let our, our worship and our adoration go beyond the words and the music and the time spent together. Let our worship then be translated into daily living of obedience. Let our... Our, our, our praise for your grace toward us be translated into tra uh, gracious living uh, toward others in forgiveness and kindness and ministry. Father, we pray that because of your grace, you would conform us to Jesus and that we would live for him, that he would be seen in us. And Father, I pray this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen of the passage that we read earlier, I hope you have some of the context for understanding it as a whole. But Paul really ends up in verse 32, summarizing the entirety of the book of Romans when he says that God has consigned all to disobedience in order that he might have mercy on all. You see, there's two ways that you can approach God. Um, one of the ways is to figure that if I'm obedient enough, if I'm good enough, I'll be such a fine fellow that God will look down from heaven and say, my, what a sterling example of humanity Wayne is. Why, I'm just so lucky to have him. Wayne, would you please, please come into my heaven and grace the, the, you know, the, 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 the courts of majesty. And, uh, that, and that's basically the idea that most people have. Is that whether in, in ways big or small, we are going to be so good, or at least good enough, that God will feel he's lucky to have us. That's the idea behind the person who says, well, I'm a basically good person. How do I know I'm going to heaven? I'm a basically good person, which means I basically obey what God wants to me, uh, me to be, which means I'm basically uh, approved by God, which means I'm basically okay to waltz into heaven, and basically God is lucky to have me. 
And so we go the road of obedience, either obedience to some religion, obedience to some law, obedience to some morality, obedience to some viewpoint of what human beings ought to be. But whatever it is, we wind up and we say, I have been obedient enough that God should let me into his presence. And after all that we've read in the book of Romans, after we've seen that God's wrath is revealed against all unrighteousness, that God's wrath is delivered to the person who's the rank pagan, who's the moral pagan, who's the religious pagan, and yes, God's wrath even visited upon the Jew, upon Israel. That God's wrath is visited upon all because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so in point of fact, if we want to go the route of obedience, that is that I am somehow good enough for God to accept me, we read here at the conclusion of our journey through Romans that God has consigned everyone, he has consigned all to disobedience. That is, he has shut us up and boxed us in the box that says sinners, and we are disobedient. See, at that point, God would be more than just to look at us in our sin and rebellion against God and say, I'm ashamed of you. I'm, a, I'm ashamed to be seen with you. I don't know if you know what shame is, the difference between shame and guilt. Guilt is when you felt like, feel like you've done something wrong. Shame is when you feel as though you are something wrong. And in reality, when we come to the, into the presence of an almighty, glorious, majestic, holy, righteous God, there's nothing but shame because we are shut up in disobedience. But praise God, the gospel doesn't end there. Paul wrote in Romans, the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. But then he goes on to say, but the righteousness of God is revealed in Jesus Christ, apart from the law, but being witnessed by the law. But we come to find out the holiness and the righteousness of God, and we are brought into a right relationship with God by his grace through the shed blood and the broken body of Jesus Christ. And it is Jesus who has brought us into his presence and so he shows us our disobedience. He consigns us to disobedience in order that we might experience his mercy toward us in Jesus Christ. And the amazing thing is that he loves sinners so much that while we were yet in rebellion against God, he loved us so much, he sent his son to die for us. And that is the book of Romans. He consigned us to disobedience in order that he might show mercy toward us. And that's why we can go back to Romans chapter 1, verse 16, and we can say with Paul, I'm not ashamed of this gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Oh, I know that, that people make fun of it. I, I, I know that people laugh at those who proclaim the gospel. I know that one of the easiest caricatures to draw is of the Christian preacher who's proclaiming Jesus. I know that the easiest thing to do is to talk about an antiquated gospel with its head stuck in the past that only wants to talk about wrath of God and, and wants to talk about sin and talk about sacrifice and atonement. I know it's, it's, it's popular even today to, to make fun of that preaching of the gospel, but I am unashamed of the gospel to tell you that God sent Jesus his son. You and I killed him, but God raised him, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm unashamed of the gospel. 
I'm unashamed of the gospel intellectually. I find that the more you read about Jesus, the more you read about the way God has worked through Christ, the more your mind is stimulated. I find that there's no area of learning, human learning, true learning, that is not touched by the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no endeavor of human understanding that is not somehow shaped and molded for the glory of God by the gospel of Jesus Christ. I find that when you become a Christian and you start to to believe in Christ and walk with Christ and you contemplate the Father and you think about the, the, the glory and the majesty of who he is, you find your mind elevated and you keep thinking more and more and more. You run into doubts, you run into questions, you study the scriptures, you find the answers, you keep moving forward. And every step along the way is a new discovery of understanding and truth. I'm not ashamed of the gospel intellectually because it is only the gospel that keeps you thinking and keeps you moving in your thought patterns until you reach the glory of God. I'm unashamed of the gospel intellectually. I'm not ashamed of the gospel historically. Oh, I know that it's easy to find people in the pages of history who have distorted the gospel and used the word of God as a hammer and as a club to try and get their own way and try to abuse other people and enslave other people and, and, and uh, just do all manners of ill and unkindnesses because of their distortion of the gospel. I know that you can look at the church and find elements of church history where the church as an institution has been aligned with political power in order to abuse those who have no power. I know that you can find times in the pages of, of church history when the church has been aligned with those who are just acquiring wealth at the expense of the poor. I know you can find in the pages of church history times when the church has wandered off from where God wants her to be. But what I can tell you this is that every time the church has rediscovered the gospel of Jesus Christ, the church has been brought back to the throne of God's mercy and grace. And when that gospel has been preached, then the church has been purified. And then the people of God have come to be who God wants them to be. I'm unashamed of the gospel historically because historically the gospel has been the hope of the poor and the hope of the downtrust, the hope of the enslaved, the hope of those who were hopeless and helpless. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And throughout the pages of history, we see the beauty of God's grace in the gospel. I'm unashamed of the gospel historically. And I'm unashamed of the gospel personally. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you'll tell the next part of this, of this message your own way. You will recount your own stories of how you were in a place that seemed to have no way out. And the gospel of Jesus Christ opened a door for you. You will tell your own story of how you were in a time so far down that it seemed you would never come up again. And the gospel of Jesus Christ lifted you up out of the depths into the heights. You will tell your own story of how the darkness closed in and the light of Jesus broke through. You'll tell your own story of how the pain became unbearable and the healing power of God came upon you and healed you. You will tell your own story personally, but you will join me in saying this. I am unashamed of the gospel personally because day by day and moment by moment in every situation, the gospel of Jesus Christ has proven itself true and has proven itself to have the power of God in my life. So we read this book of Romans and coming to the end of it, we find ourselves back at the beginning of it. I am unashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation. 
Oh, what a glorious message that is. There's a lot of messaging that goes out under the guise of Christian preaching today. And I would not offer a judgment of it because the scripture says, do not judge another man's servant. But what I can tell you is, this is that the gospel is a message of salvation. God is a helper, but he's more than a helper. God did not send Jesus just to help us do better. God did not send Jesus just to help us discover who we are. God did not just send Jesus just so that we might be helped along the way when things got a little tough. Jesus is a help and an aid in times of, of, of great stress and trial and tribulation. But Jesus did not come to help us. He came to save us, not to make us a little bit better, but to bring us to life when we were dead. And the gospel is a gospel that has the power of salvation. Oh, Paul weaves for us that beautiful story throughout the book of Romans of how we are lost in our sins, worthy of condemnation, deserving only the wrath of God. But Jesus took that wrath upon himself when he died on the cross, when his body was broken and his blood was shed. There Jesus took the wrath we deserved upon himself and we were set free by the sacrifice of Christ. That is the power of salvation. But I'm unashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation to all who believe. This is why it's so much fun to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's fun because you get to talk about Almighty God. It is fun to preach the gospel because you talk about a creator who from the depths of eternity designed a universe that one day would bring us to see him and glorify him. It is fun to preach the gospel because it tells us and, and allows you to talk about a God who looks at people who are broken and wounded and, and just down in the dust and how he picks them up. The gospel is fun to preach because it allows you to talk about the sweep and the beauty of Jesus Christ. The gospel is fun to preach, but it is fun to preach. It is rewarding to preach. It is joyful to preach the gospel because at the end of it all is this, and it can be yours if only you believe. Oh, if God had laid any other burden upon us and he says this gospel of salvation, it can be yours if only you can contribute a small part. This gospel of salvation could be yours if only you would add a little bit of your righteousness, add a little bit of your wisdom, add a little bit of your strength. Oh, if the gospel were to all those who could add a little bit to the work of Christ, we would not be saved. For we could never add enough and never add sufficient quality to anything that God has done already. But the gospel is this, that it's the power of salvation to all who believe. That means just put your trust in Jesus Christ. For a little eight-year-old boy, that means going to the front of the church, shaking the hand of preacher and saying, I want to be baptized. I ask Jesus into my heart as my Lord and Savior. What does that mean? What does the Trinity mean? How does that relate to the virgin birth? What does it mean about the hypostatic union of the two natures of Christ? I don't know. I just ask Jesus into my heart. That's all you need. Amen. And the gospel, we're unashamed of the gospel because it's for all those who have faith, all those who believe. That's what Paul's been wrestling with here in the book of Romans in these last three chapters, 9, 10, and 11. He's been wrestling with what do you do with a people of God who were brought by grace out of nothing to be a great people who became the seedbed for the Messiah. 
What do you do with a people like that who are so impressed with their righteousness, so worried about their legalism, so so enamored with their spiritual uh, rituals and their temple? And what do you do with a people like that who have an outward form of godliness, who have a zeal for God, who have the oracles of God and the, and the word of God in their possession, but they have not accepted Jesus Christ? What do you do? And Paul's answer was simply this, the same gospel for all. All you need is to believe. That's all you need. And so there's always been a remnant of Israel. There's always been a small portion of Israel that has come to believe in Jesus Christ. And God has not forsaken them. He's not left them. He's not rejected them. But he has rather told them time and again that his gifts and promises and calling is irrevocable to him. Oh, notice how Paul then concludes that verse 16 in chapter 1. He says, I'm unashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. And then what does he say? To the Jew first, then to the Greek, then to the Gentile, then to the non-Jew. But it's to the Jew first. Now, that's true chronologically. It is simply true that in history, the Jews heard first. It is true that in history, the Jews were the first people to get the word of God given to them, the promises of the Messiah given to them. It was Jews first who were brought into being disciples of Jesus. So historically, that's true. It is true in terms of the history of missions for Paul would first of all go to the synagogues and there he would preach Jesus because there you had people who already understood that there's only one God. He's the true and living God. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God who has promised to send the Messiah. Paul would go and preach in the synagogues, for there were people who were primed and ready to receive the gospel. Some would believe, but most would reject, and Paul would not be invited back. He'd be invited out to the front yard so that they might throw rocks and stones at him. But he started in the synagogue. That was the missionary endeavor, to the Jew first, and then he would go to the Gentiles of the city, and then he would go to the Greeks of the city, and then they would hear, and they could respond as well. Paul says that this hardening that has come upon Israel, this this seemingly wholesale rejection of the Messiah that has come upon Israel, he says, understand, it is only partial. It is not complete. It is a partial hardening for there is still a remnant that believes. It is partial because God is still able to break through the hardness of some and to bring them to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Oh, pray for that person you know and love who doesn't love Jesus yet. Pray for that person who seems so hard and indifferent to the gospel. Pray for that person who seems yet to reject anything having to do with the things of God in Christ. Pray for that person because the hardening that has come upon them may be just a partial hardening. And God's Holy Spirit can still break through. You can't. Your wisdom can't. Your arguing can't. The zingers can't. The I should have said this can't. But God's Holy Spirit can. Paul said, remember that the hardening coming upon Israel is a partial hardening. Understand also that it's a passing hardening. It is not permanent. That the day will come when Israel too shall bow and Israel too shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I don't understand how it works out. I don't understand the demographics and the, and the statistical analysis of it. But what I do know is this, that when Jesus returns, Israel will be the first primed and ready to understand who he is and the first to embrace him. I don't know exactly what the restoration of Israel would look like, 
but I know that God does not take back his promises and he does not renege on his calling. He does not withdraw his gifts. Oh, the glory of God that he does that. For he has given us the gift of the Holy Spirit. He has given us the gift of salvation. He has given us the gift of a personal relationship with the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. What God has given to us is covered by this verse. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. He does not take them back. Oh, understand this hardening that has come upon some in Israel. It is a partial hardening. It's a passing hardening. But it is a purposeful hardening. It is something that God is using. When you go back to Romans 8, 28, and it says that all things work together for good to those who are called according to God's purpose. That's how the good, that's what God is working out. That's the good that he's working towards. And so God has a purpose in all things. And though Israel now has a partial hardening that has come upon her, God has used that to share the gospel with Gentiles. We must thank and praise the Father that he did not say, well, if the Jews don't want me, I don't want them. And then he just went off to the other side of the universe and left us to our sin. No, he used even that rejection as a way to compel missionaries to go to the Gentiles, to preach to those who are not Jewish, and ultimately to preach to us, those of us who are not Jewish in this room. We praise God that the partial hardening that has come upon Israel still has a purpose, and it is the purpose of God's grace. So I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to all who believe, and it's to the Jew first. Praise God, but it's also to the Greek. It's also to the Gentile. So now we come to the end of chapter Nine, uh, chapter 11 in, in the book of Romans, and I, I just want to end very quickly with this. That in verse 32, God has consigned all to disobedience. He says, I'm not going to relate to you on the basis of your goodness. He's consigned us all to disobedience, that all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. But why did God do that for this purpose to the end that he may have mercy on all? that all of us come by his mercy. In a few moments, we come to the Lord's table. And when we come to the Lord's table, we partake of the broken body of Jesus. He didn't have to do that. God did not have to allow his son to be broken for us, but he did, and that was mercy. We come to the table and we partake of the cup, the shed blood of Jesus, and Jesus did not have to pour out his blood for us, but willingly, to the glory of the Father, he died for you and for me. And that was mercy. God consigned us. He put us in the box labeled disobedient in order that we might experience the mercy when he lifts us up out and into his own presence. I'm not of a sh I am not ashamed of a gospel that does that. And so when we come to the table, come thankfully, joyfully, prayerfully. Come just uh, surrendering your life anew and afresh. Come just asking that God would make your life a vessel of his praise and that you would live a life unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, how thankful we are that it's mercy and not works, that it is grace and not law. 
that it is faith and not our will and understanding. Father, that it is your love and not our level of devotion. Father, how thankful we are that it is all Jesus. And we just ask that we might ever praise and adore you, that we give you thanksgiving and praise. That, Father, that our lives would proclaim this gospel in word and in deed, that others would just turn heavenward and wonder about such a great God, such a great Savior, such a great life in the power of the resurrection. Father, I thank and praise you for it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.